Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, traffic is moving again between Canada and the U.S. now that the Ambassador Bridge has reopened, but it's not the same story in Ottawa. We'll give you an update on that. The Canadian military is pulling troops out of Ukraine and temporarily relocating them elsewhere in Europe. Is this a signal that the Russian invasion is imminent? And how's Canada doing at the Olympics in Beijing? Mike Arsenault from Global News joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, let's go back to our nation's capital. And although there was some good news, I guess, of finally clearing the uh, the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, and we're told the traffic is flowing on that bridge now, uh, the Ottawa situation, uh, not so much. And uh, there are some concerns here about what's going on and, and some lot, well, should we say a lot of finger pointing between the federal government, uh, the provincial government and the uh, municipal government in Ottawa. But Ottawa Mayor uh, Jim Watson apparently set a deadline of noon today for truckers encamped in the Capitol's core to move out of the residential streets. The talk is, is that he has struck a tentative deal uh, to get out of the, set pres- uh, the, the streets, especially the residential streets, and focus their protest on Parliament Hill itself. Steve Henniger has some details for us. Mayor Jim Watson outlined the proposal in a letter yesterday, and a protest organizer tweeted late last night that the trucks would leave residential areas today after being parked there for more than two weeks, much to the annoyance of area residents. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, meantime, spoke last night with senior federal officials and cabinet ministers about further actions the government can take to end the nationwide protests over COVID-19 public health measures. And he is expected to speak with the premiers today about the protests that began outside his office and have since spawned copycat demonstrations around the world. Steve Henniger, the Canadian Press. Well, let's get an update on what is happening in the capital right now. Do, do that and comment about a number of the other stories uh, circulating around uh, over the weekend, especially to do with the Ottawa situation. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Lori Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, she's in Ottawa, the nation's capital right now. Uh, Lori, uh, pleasure to have you back. I assume you're in the deep freeze just like we are here in southern Ontario. <laughs> You bet. It is cold. But yeah, um, Ottawa, Monday morning. Let's see what's happened after the weekend. I'm almost afraid to look downtown, but we shall see. Well, what have you heard? The, the story we got yesterday, of course, is that Jim Watson, the mayor of Ottawa, uh, has uh, has reached out to the protesters and simply asked or demanded whatever word or verb you want to use here uh, to get the, the trucks out of the residential area, uh, which I guess is probably the first time that I can remember anyway in these last three or four weeks that an elected official has reached out to these protesters. Uh, what's what's What are you hearing on, on the Hill there? Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing that, that, like from both sides, that that might not be really <laughs> something that we should be putting a lot of trust in. On the convoy side, people are saying this is BS. There's no such agreement, you know. But then some people are saying, oh, yeah, you know, we'll move. That's fine. And so I don't know what to expect from it. And as you said, like, there's been... Um, solid messaging from other orders of government that we're not going to negotiate with the organizers of this thing. And so a bit surprising to see Watson come over social media and everything last night to say that he's struck a deal. Like it just seems a bit offside, but we'll see whether it amounts to anything. I'm I'm not too optimistic. Well, especially because when I heard this yesterday, the first thing that came to my mind was, well, who is he talking to? Because the story, as you've been telling us, and we've heard from uh, our, our reporter David Aiken, of course, up on Parliament Hill and other global news folks, uh, they the officials don't even know who, who's organizing. I mean, they know names, but I mean, who speaks for these people? There seems to be three or four different people, depending on which day we're talking about here. So who actually gets to make that call, if anybody does? Well, that's it. Like, I think, you know, there's there's evidence to suggest that there's some sort of command center to this thing, if you could put it that way. There's some some leadership. 
but it's not like it's, you know, a completely cohesive thing. And there's no sense that, you know, if, if people decide to do their own thing and go rogue, what's anybody going to do about it? Right. Like it's, it's not that organized. It, it's, there's a supply chain, there's information, there's communications, but there's no sense that, you know, if you, if you go against the leadership, somebody right like it's this is people are coming from all over the place especially on the weekends where you see a huge influx of people coming into the city and they're setting up where they want there's i mean i walked through a bit yesterday like there's there's people set up in different places around the town and now counter protests are also setting up around the town and so it's not it's not a good situation here at all that's interesting about the counter protests, and, and of course, that's something a lot of people were fearful of because, I mean, we're, uh, the, the potential for confrontation. Um, these people are being vocal too. I'm, I'm told, and you know, go home, go away. We're tired of you. I, I want to sleep again. Those are some of the placards we saw from some of the counter protesters. Uh, was there a concern about about possible confrontation and about one group, bump, you know, bumping into another with uh, with less than favorable results? Shall we say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely the concern. And at the at the root of all of this is a deep concern among Ottawa residents that Ottawa police are not enforcing the law and, you know, have had opportunity to take the tools they have to push back and contain this occupation, and they haven't done so. And there's people suggesting that the Ottawa police are, in fact, complicit with what's going on. And so if that's the case, then people are going to go out and defend themselves. People aren't trusting the police to do it. And then you've got, you know, rule by force as opposed to rule by law, which is very dangerous. And you don't like you can see, you know, in these circumstances where there's groups of people and they're confronting one another. It's not going to take much, I fear, for that to become escalated, for things to, to get pushy, for things to go in a direction nobody wants. And you know, where are the cops in all this? So it's it's really frustrating. Well, yeah, and we saw that on Twitter on Saturday. Um uh, here's a quick uh, tweet. Just when, uh, Saturday evening, about 7 o'clock, I believe this is. Uh, police in Ottawa stood by and did nothing as protesters installed a hot tub in the middle of a downtown street. We have images of police fist bumping some of the protesters. What next? Police carrying their bathwater or scrubbing <laughs> their backs? Uh, and now we hear the story yesterday, of course, of an investigation that's going on about uh, apparently some uh, Canadian military folks uh, could be involved in these protests as well. Uh, we'd heard rumors about that, but uh, and that has not been verified yet. There's an ongoing investigation, uh, but it gets uh, uglier and uglier, Laurie. It does, and the the social cohesion, the social fabric, the trust is just fraying, you know, by the minute. And yeah, I mean, when you hear these reports, like not just about what's happening with the Ottawa police, uh, who are saying that they don't have enough resources to be able to deal with this, and the the police chief has said, you know, this is not what police are for. This is a whole other of security and we need you know we need something else we need more resources but i mean it's to the point where people are not thinking that the police are going to protect them and keep them safe and so you get this sort of what choice do you have but to defend yourself you know if someone attacks me if someone attacks my property why would i call the cops given the case given the situation and so there's there's just you know temperatures are high i really hope that this week we see a kind of um exodus of people who came over the weekend that's what we've seen in previous weeks where there seems to be a big atmosphere over the weekend but then it kind of dies down and so maybe we'll see that again i mean yesterday the city was just jammed and cops were trying to stop traffic into the city which is very like frustrating for the residents who are trying to get home but there's still you know there were still lots and lots of people around yesterday late in the day the focus, a lot of the focus and a lot of the, the back and forth between the politicians was about the Ottawa Police Service in general. 
what's the mood there uh, for the residents? I mean, they, obviously they're frustrated because this has been going on so long. Uh, and, and, you know, the accusation by Bill Blair yesterday uh, that, uh, you know, police have got to do their job. We can't do much until these guys start doing their job. Uh, and you've got, you know, police chief slowly there simply saying, well, we, we don't have the resources. Uh, I've seen some reaction on social media last night. They essentially said it's not that the cops don't have the resources. It's that a lot of them don't want to do the job. Uh, that they could be complicit in this whole thing. Is, is, is there a changing mood about police services in general there? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's been pointed out very poignantly on social media and elsewhere that <clears throat> now white people are seeing what it's like to be abandoned by the people who are, you know, supposed to be there to protect. Not happening. And so there's a, there's a huge reckoning here. This will have significant consequences on public trust going forward. Uh, the police have lost a lot of legitimacy here. And yeah, I mean, like there's, there's huge availability of, of clips, conversations. You can spend just a couple of minutes on social media flipping through examples of make it, make it of, like, it looks like the, the police are complicit. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but there's, there's definitely a mood that there's no way that you can trust that law enforcement is happening the way it should. And as you said, even Bill Blair is saying, you know, why aren't the police, this is inexplicable to him. Why are the police not doing their job? And so we'll see this morning what comes out of that cabinet meeting, whether there's, um, you know, any more willingness or, or interest on the federal side to take up some of this space to be able to shut this down, because it's, it's also completely ludicrous that the federal government can't protect the parliamentary precinct. I think we all can be forgiven for assuming that if there was something like this on Parliament Hill, that it would be federal jurisdiction, that there'd be some way, you know, for national, you know, for the national parliament to be protected by the federal government. But apparently, no, that's the Ottawa police. And, and again, yeah, the, the meeting, I'm going to get back to Blair in just a second. We'll find out what's going to happen there and, and even why uh, the meeting is taking place, aside from the obvious situation, because it hasn't changed a whole lot. Uh, but I talked to... Uh, a friend of mine, a contact of mine, who has a long history in law enforcement here in Ontario, uh, and I asked him about the situation. He says, well, I don't have any firsthand information, but he says, I can tell you anecdotally, uh, you know, because invariably when, when Chief slowly starts asking for assistance, uh, we saw this in London over the weekend, uh, surrounding police forces. We saw London police were involved in that. Uh, certainly uh, OPP were involved in that. But uh, this individual told me that he says nobody wants to touch the Ottawa Police Service with a 10-foot pole. They just don't think it's a very well-run organization, which came as a bit of a shock to me uh, to suggest that uh, even if they asked some of the surrounding forces, they're not so sure that they'd be compliant with it. So uh, this uh, this has really, really shone the light on an awful lot of problems, I think, with police service in that city. Absolutely. I mean, I, that's definitely going to be one of the takeaways. There are many. Like, we're seeing vulnerabilities in our institutions across the board that have been, you know, revealed by this incident. And it's not like people didn't know it was coming. Like back on, I think it was January 15th, when the vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers took effect in, on the Canadian side. I mean, immediately there were talks of, we are sending a freedom convoy to Ottawa. How in the world it has gotten to this point where there is, you know, embedded occupation, you know, in the parliamentary precinct. And it comes and goes on the weekend. Like it gets, it, you know, it gets more loud and more of, of an issue every weekend, more populated. They built a stage over the weekend. There's this hot tub in the middle of the street. There are portable toilets set up. It's it's just a mockery of of our democratic institutions in the capital. It's, it's insane. Well, I know, and I've seen, again, I got more emails about this this morning after some of my comments. 
that uh, these are nice people and they're just having, you know, they're friendly and they're for, and these aren't Ottawa residents who are saying that. These are people that says, you know, well, I've done my own checking. Well, if you've done it from Hamilton or London, you're not doing your own checking. You're just simply going to the websites that, that are going to substantiate your points of view. But they all seem to be missing the point. They don't belong there. All right. Mm -hmm. I don't care if they're smiling and happy and drinking and singing songs on Saturday night. You don't belong on Wellington Street in front of the Parliament buildings. You can't set up a, a hot tub there. You can't set up, you know, balloons and, and, and stages. You're not supposed to be there. You're hijacking a city. I don't care what your reason is. You're hijacking a city, uh, which begs the uh, dovetail right into my question about Bill Blair. Uh, and, and what happens today with this meeting that the Prime Minister is having with his cabinet. Uh, we know the protocol suggests, Laurie, that uh, if you're going to invoke uh, the Emergency Measures Act, you have to, at least have to consult with the provinces. And invariably, uh, we're told that the legislation pretty much states that one province has to request it. Now, that may be uh, Ontario through Doug Ford. Uh, is, is this meeting today ostensibly just to tell the provinces, yeah, we're going in there? So, yeah, there's a meeting with the provinces and then there's a meeting with uh, the cabinets. And I mean, obviously, like I'm I'm in Ottawa, but there are other protests, too, that that haven't been and they're not protests. There are other occupations that have not yet been dealt with. And so it's more than Ontario. That's, you know, there's British Columbia, Alberta. There are yeah. many premiers that that are dealing with this firsthand. And so, yes, I, I would think that that meeting is going to have to be talking about what it would look like if the federal government got involved, what, you know, what are the risks and, and what are the potentially positive outcomes? How are we going to do this? What's the timeline? All those sorts of things. And so those conversations are going to be very interesting today. And not all premiers might not be on the same side of it, right? Like there could be pre premiers who want to pursue different strategies with this. But to go back to your previous point, it is infuriating to hear this line of argument around, these are nice people and this is a peaceful protest. Come on, this is, this is lawless. And it is an intimidating occupation of space that is supposed to be public and to the point where people don't feel safe walking around. I understand that not everybody's here with intimidating intentions and some people just want to come and say their peace and leave. And I, that's not the problem. The problem is this is this is taking down a city and it is not lawful. It is, you know, but it, then you've got the issue on the law enforcement side. It's it's just unbelievable. Well, and even if they were to go through this, and we're hearing rumors from our folks uh, in Queen's Park and right now, uh, the Premier is supposed to do a presser in about 20, 15 minutes. Now they say he may delay that uh, because mm. the federal government may be imposing the Emergency Measures Act. We're trying to confirm that story now, uh, but it seems as if they're heading down that road. But uh, listening to some of the uh, enforcement officials and some of the security officials, they said, God bless them if they do, but there is no plan. Uh, Windsor, th there was a plan. We could see that you know developing on TV on Saturday. Uh, they were simply moving people back and channeling them away from the bridge uh, to an area where they could control the crowd. Uh, as as the one, I think it was Chris Lewis, the former OPP uh, uh, head here in Ontario, said, they're all over the place now. Uh, that that ch The chance of actually channeling them and controlling where the crowd's going is long since gone. So I, I don't know, even know how they want to, to do this or how they plan to do this and they, if, in fact, they decide to go ahead that way. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is so, I know a number of people have pointed out, like, <clears throat> the opportunity to resolve this peacefully is possibly lost by now. And the logistics of trying to contain something that is now running through the city is, you know, I don't know how they're going to do that either. And I mean, it was, it was difficult enough on the bridge, where the, the geography of the situation was far more straightforward and in a city with lots of civilians and old buildings and tiny streets and snow everywhere. And some of these people have children in their trucks. Like it is completely, you know, like I, I don't know how they're going to manage this either. 
And the fact that it's been here for weeks now is only making it worse. Laurie, stay well. Uh, we'll see what develops over the next few minutes, uh, what the Premier is going to come forward or not, and what's going to happen as a result of this meeting uh, with the Prime Minister and uh, the Cabinet. Uh, as always, appreciate your time today, Laurie. Thanks so much. Thank you, too, and happy Valentine's Day, Bill. And, and to you, too. Thank you so much, <laughs> Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Feeling amorous nonetheless, despite what's going on in Ottawa. Have a great day today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Notwithstanding what's going on in Ottawa right now with uh, the Premier and the Prime Minister uh, meeting, the Premier's rather, meeting about the impossible invocation of the uh, Emergency Measures Act, lots of uh, interest in what's going on in Washington right now, and more specifically what's happening in Washington vis-a-vis Ukraine. Biden and uh, Vladimir Putin had a long meeting on Saturday by telephone conference, a Zoom meeting. Uh, did not go well. Uh, so is the invasion of Ukraine imminent? To try to bring us up to speed on all of this, we are so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent uh, with Global News down in the American capital. Uh, Reggie, uh, thank you so much for the time on a very busy Monday. Appreciate you joining us today. Good morning. Let me ask you, first of all, about the meeting on Saturday. Uh, the, the meeting between Biden and uh, Putin went a pretty long time, we're told. No breakthrough. Uh, a lot of back and forth on this situation. Uh, Putin seems to have dug his heels into this, uh, and there's a lot of concern that I'm hearing right now that, uh, that Biden cannot seem to crack through that. These are not really negotiations. They're kind of threats as to what's going to happen if you guys cross my line, isn't it? It is, uh, and it's it's kind of a line that we've been hearing from the Biden administration for several weeks now, in that if uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin opts to move forward, that there's going to be some kind of swift and severe action. We've heard that not only from the United States, we've heard that from members of the EU and from NATO allies uh, as well, that they will come down hard on uh, Moscow, on the Kremlin, and potentially on President Putin himself. Uh, I don't know if anyone was expecting there to be uh, some kind of diplomatic breakthrough during this phone call. I think this was just uh, kind of more telephone diplomacy, considering we had President Biden speaking with uh, uh, Zelensky uh, over the weekend, speaking with Putin over the weekend, and now there are more European leaders heading into Ukraine and heading into Russia. Uh, I think this is, uh, you know, a potential for Russia to maybe see themselves as buying some time here, uh, but it also is leading to that sense of urgency uh, with the Pentagon still, uh, and I mean, and security advisors in the U.S. still convinced that something could happen at any day now. What's you read on what what the Ukraine government is doing uh, about this right now? You mentioned that uh, that Biden met with uh, Zelensky, had a long meeting on phone uh, yesterday, a long phone conversation. Uh, yet we're hearing from Zelensky and others in in the Ukraine administration to to remain calm, and and they seem to be almost downplaying the possibility uh, of of a Russian invasion, which is totally uh, contrary to what we're hearing from the U.S. State Department. Yeah, I mean, we've heard from the Ukrainian government uh, in the last 24 hours basically put a call out for countries to stop these evacuations uh, of their embassies and to stop people from within Ukraine moving to the western flank uh, of the country, kind of further away from uh, the Russian border. But again, this is something that we've been hearing for weeks now, uh, the Ukrainian government simply trying to walk back this urgent threat uh, that there could be, you know, a war on the doorstep. 
uh, given the fact that they're seeing such a massive buildup here, you know, 130,000 troops from Russia's side, which would far overpower anything that, you can, that Ukraine can do with its military. Uh, I think part of that is for uh, the Ukrainian government to be able to provide a sense of calm to the country, to uh, not throw its markets into turmoil, to not kind of throw businesses up in the air and, and try to let people kind of move on. But it's very difficult when you're living in the shadow of this kind of Russian aggressive posture uh, that is not only on Russia, but also so uh, at the border uh, with Belarus, uh, it's, you know, really it is unclear why Ukraine is going so hard in trying to make it seem like there is no there there. Uh, and it simply could be because they understand that if war ultimately starts, there are going to be very few countries that come to its defense, uh, specifically being NATO, because NATO does not want to find itself in a full-fledged war with Russia. So this could simply be a way for Ukraine to say, look, there is something there. Just don't pay attention to that person behind the curtain. It sounds an awful lot. I think you're bang on that. It's it's more for the domestic audience because, as you mentioned, the, the you know the reality, the information that's available to us right now paints a much more different picture than this. As you mentioned, 130 troops, uh, they basically got Ukraine surrounded. Well, three out of four sides. Uh, you know, we've got government officials. I believe, as you mentioned, the German chancellor is is going to be uh, visiting uh, with Putin today uh, to try to t- talk about what's going on there. Uh, we've heard from France and other countries involved in this. They all seem to understand the reality. And, and I'm sure that in his heart of heart, Zelensky does as well. But I guess he doesn't have a whole lot of sway in what's going on here. He's the, 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 looks like the Ukraine government is going to be much more reactionary here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a matter of, you know, the rest of the world is watching this situation unfold, uh, you know, and understands that this could be something that happens at any point, which is why NATO is putting itself in a position of being able to to defend its territory along the eastern flank, understanding that this could come and Russia, uh, rather Ukraine, uh, is simply going to have to deal with this when the coin is flipped and Russia ultimately decides whether they're going to come in uh, or not. This this could potentially become uh, problematic for Ukraine, but there are a lot of scenarios here. I mean, and, and things are changing very quickly. Over the weekend, we saw Ukrainian officials say, look, maybe we'll put a constitutional amendment forward that says that we're simply not going to proceed with this, you know, move down the line if it comes to join NATO, and then walked it back almost immediately saying, no, 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 that move to join NATO is still going to be enshrined in our constitution. There are other possibilities here that maybe Russia opts to to make a kind of uh, move across the border just to take key parts like the Donbass region, uh, and, and use that as a way to put more pressure to replace the government in Ukraine. There's a lot of, of, of unknowns here that the U.S. and NATO was really trying to stay one step ahead of. Uh, and you're right, though, Ukraine is simply just going to have to wait and see what's going to happen. Well, you, you talked about uh, German Chancellor uh, Schultz meeting uh, with uh, with Putin today. Uh, and I, the reports I saw, so depending on, on which reports you're reading here, says uh, he's going to try to get Putin to stand down on situations like this, uh, which seems rather odd because, I mean, Germany itself has been criticized uh, by fellow NATO members, for instance, uh, for being rather ambivalent toward this whole situation. Yeah, they don't want Putin to invade, but... Uh, they don't want to step on Putin's toes either, and, and I'm sure they, you know the gas pipelines is a big part of that. Uh, but they haven't been as uh, as adamant uh, as some of the other uh, NATO nations about uh, Russians' incursion or possible incursion. 
Yeah, and I mean, look, it's worth pointing out that Germany just moved more of its troops into Lithuania within the last couple of hours, so they are starting to build up a posture alongside uh, American troops, which moved into Poland uh, over the weekend. So Germany is understanding that the pressure is on, and there have been conversations in and around the German government as to maybe it's time to rely less on uh, Russian oil and Russian energy uh, and start to uh, to kind of centralize the focus somewhere else that's outside of Russia, uh, understanding that you know it's important for Germany's economy to be able to rely on that uh, energy that comes in, but at the same time, cutting it off and looking somewhere else could potentially do catastrophic damage to uh, the Russian economy. So there is an opportunity here for Germany to kind of lay its foot down. But at the same time, this is simply that shuttle diplomacy that we've been seeing going on. We saw it with Macron. We're now seeing it with the German chancellor moving from Kiev today to, uh, to Russia tomorrow. This is all simply just uh, pressure. This is an opportunity to potentially pave more path for, for people to walk down. Earlier today, we saw the, uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, talking with his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, and Lavrov came out and said, maybe we don't need to go to war. Maybe there are other things that we can do. Maybe talks need to continue to be the foundation to a diplomatic end. So it really is unclear here what Russia is trying to do and what it's going to do, even with the pressure that's coming from American leaders and European leaders. And I know that that's probably the end game for an awful lot of people to avoid any sort of military conflict. Uh, but, you know, the earmarks are, are quite different. Uh, you reported last week, of course, that, you know, as you mentioned, Canadians are uh, getting diplomats out of the way. Uh, we knew that there were some Canadian troops that were deployed there a few weeks ago. They were not there for uh, training purposes or anything else. They said extensively it was probably to help with the uh, the extraction of some of the diplomats there. But they've Canadian troops have all been moved essentially, I guess, to the western part of, of Ukraine right now. And I guess that's to get them out of firing range, isn't it? In case there is a conflict, they don't want to be caught in the middle. They don't want to be caught in the middle of it, uh, but as well, they are not in a position to be fighting either alongside Ukrainian troops or against Russian forces. Uh, it's the same that we are seeing with U.S. soldiers that are being moved in and kind of repositioned in and around Ukraine and around the eastern flank of NATO, because, again, there is an understanding here that the West does not want to find itself involved in a war with Russia, uh, particularly if this were to escalate to um, you know the extreme point, because you would have then several nuclear nations uh, involved in a war ultimately for a country that is not to be protected uh, by NATO, simply just to be uh, propped up on the outside periphery uh, of, of Ukraine. So, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a lot that is going on with this. There are a lot of moves that, that, uh, that uh, governments like the U.S. and like Canada are trying to do to protect not only its troops, but also to protect the sovereignty uh, of Ukraine. And the longer these talks last, uh, you know, the less there is for, uh, you know, a war. But at the end of the day, when you still have the Pentagon coming out uh, on a near daily basis saying, look, that threat is still there. This could happen before the end of the Olympics. This could happen by Wednesday or Thursday uh, of this week. It really does throw up into the air who knows what, who has better insight into things. But ultimately, the ball is in the Kremlin's court, and they are going to be the one that, th- that rolls it. National Security Advisor, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was uh, doing the uh, the political shows, of course, on Sunday morning, and uh, especially on CNN with Jake Tapper, he was talking uh, about what an attack might look like, and it was a pretty bleak picture that he painted. Uh, I think, my, you know, as as he mentioned in the program, this is not where they're just simply going to start marching into Ukraine, uh, but he's talking about an air attack, first of all, a barrage of missiles and bomb attacks that would soften things up and probably kill innocent civilians. Uh, it's 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 a 
I, I don't know what Mr. Sullivan's comments were based on, whether it's intelligence that they have or if it's, uh, well, the Russians, of course, have accused him of fear-mongering in situations like that. But I think what he's trying to do here, Reggie, is underscore the fact that, look, when they come, it's going to be ugly and people are going to lose lives. Do you really want to see that happen? Yeah, and that's, that echoes the comments that Sullivan made uh, on Friday when, again, he wouldn't get into the intelligence or the sources that led to this uh, this kind of you know upfront call that says that something is going to happen possibly imminently, possibly in the next few days. But it was uh, a grim assessment by saying that this could start with uh, an aerial drop, like you said, especially in eastern regions uh, like the Donbass region. But we talked to uh, Ukrainian experts who deal with Ukraine-Russia um, uh, issues, uh, we talked to one this morning, who made a point of saying, look, what Whatever happens, whether it's an aerial assault, whether it's, you know, little green men moving in, it's likely not going to work its way into the capital city of Kiev, only because, A, the forces are definitely surrounding Kiev, but ultimately Russia runs the risk of losing heavily uh, when it comes to its military if it were to try and take on the capital city. So this is something that could really start to infiltrate and really concentrate itself around the extremities of Ukraine from Belarus all the way through uh, the Russian border. Uh, so, you know, th- it could be something aerial, but there are also fears here that this could move beyond that into cyber warfare. Is this going to be something that ultimately tries to take down or destabilize not just Ukraine, but also the countries in NATO or Europe that are also trying to support Ukraine? Do we get into, you know, the, the, the next generation of warfare here, where it solely targets infrastructure and it targets utilities and it targets anything that's connected to uh, the internet. That is a serious threat here, where you could have kind of a ground war and an invisible war taking place at the same time. But but where's the wiggle room here, Reggie? And as you guys have been reporting for the last couple of days, and, and even the most recent discussion between Putin and Biden, Biden was adamant. He says, well, you know, we're not backing down on any of this stuff. You know, we're not going to guarantee that, that Ukraine won't at some point become a member of NATO. Uh, and, and basically, he's got his list of demands and Putin's got his. They don't seem to, to have any middle ground here where they can say, OK, at least we can agree to disagree on this, which I guess sometimes points to the inevitability of this. But it also raises the question, what can be accomplished with further negotiations by where both sides seem so adamantly entrenched in their positions? Yeah, I mean, look, that that's kind of the million-dollar question here that no one has an answer to, potentially, uh, with the exception of uh, of Vladimir Putin. He, he Remember, look, the United States sent a series of responses to Russian security concerns about... Uh, uh, that that were sent to uh, the Russian foreign minister maybe just a couple of weeks ago, and Vladimir Putin has said, "Look, most of the Euro- most of the American answers are okay. It's the responses that are come from coming from Europe and the responses that are coming from NATO allies uh, that we're not happy with right now because they still see it as an infringement on Russian security. Uh, it's unclear what's going to happen. America is not going to blink. NATO is not going to blink, especially when it comes to the open door policy of allowing more countries uh, to fall under the NATO curtain. Something Russia." obviously doesn't want to happen, but at the same time, very few uh, in uh, in government positions, especially from the West and especially from the United States, are going to simply just lay down and allow for Russian concerns to kind of supersede all of the diplomatic efforts and all of the potential sovereign nations that are at risk that are uh, abutting the Russian border. So again, this is one of those moments where the ball really is in the Kremlin's court and all Europe can do, all NATO can do, all President Biden can do is simply try to put the, uh, the community on Because, look, at the end of the day, Vladimir Putin wants to be seen as a statesman on the world stage. And the more he's able to engage, the more he's able to make it seem like he's getting concessions from world leaders, it plays well to his audience at home. And they still see him as this viable, vibrant leader who's able to carry the country going forward. 
The rest of the world doesn't want to see that, but ultimately they can engage in conversations with him if that means that it's going to keep bombs from falling out of the sky. Got about a minute left here. How's this playing at home for, for the Biden administration, who, as, as you've been reporting for the last number of months, they've, they've got their troubles with the, the home audience to begin with. Even the discussion about a possible invasion of Ukraine, uh, I, I, I know some people tried to draw the analogy between that and, of course, the, the ill-fated weapons of mass destruction uh, attempt by the, the Bush administration. But that's because there's been an attack on U.S. soil. Is this resonating with Americans? Are they, uh, are they involved in this? And are, are they watching this closely or are they they're looking elsewhere right now? Well, I mean, look, this is part and parcel with, you know, the ongoing issues that the Biden administration is facing, whether it has to do with COVID or domestic issues or his own agenda or things on the world stage now. There was polling that was done towards the end of January that showed that a growing number of Americans on the approach to 50 percent had some concerns that President Biden wouldn't be able to handle the situation uh, with Russia or with China or anywhere else uh, on the world stage solely because he's been unable to kind of get a grip on his own agenda domestically. So there are fears here that the administration is going to lose some kind of support, but at the same time, there's a bipartisan support in Washington to to ensure that Russia kind of steps back and remains in its own court and doesn't infringe uh, anywhere else. So, you know, the president's got his own struggles when it comes to popularity, but the fact that he does have Republicans on his side in trying to curtail Russia's aggression, uh, that does at least reflect better on the administration. Uh, very fluid situation, changing almost by the hour. I always appreciate your updates on this, Reggie. Thank you so much for this. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in uh, the Washington area and uh, right down the Beltway. And a lot of politicking going on to do with this situation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's turn the page a little bit and get into what's going on with our Canadian contingent at the Beijing Olympics. It's a, a, a mixed reaction to what's gone on in the weekend. Uh, some successes for the Canadian athletes and uh, some head-scratching announcements from the IOC as well. And to try to make some sense out of all this, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the program Mike Arsenal. Of course, uh, Mike is a reporter uh, with Global News. Uh, Mike, a very busy day. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, by the way. appreciate the time. For sure, Bill. Anytime. I guess we're probably going to start with the uh, head-scratching decision, as you mentioned, uh, by the IOC, I guess, right? You know, to, to report on this, though, you, you pretty much need a law degree, don't you, Mike, to be able to sift through this stuff and figure out what these guys are trying to say? Uh, yeah, there was a positive drug test, uh, but yes, she can compete. Uh, no, she's not going to get a medal. If she, and, but well, try to explain this to our listeners. There's, there's a really, really bizarre explanation here. Well, I, I originally thought when I was covering the Olympics, it would just be about the sport. I didn't realize, yes, I'd have to dip into uh, dip into law a little bit as well. But basically what has happened, so the Russian female figure skater, she competed in the mixed team event, and Canada finished fourth. Okay, the Russians won the gold. Now, it was reported that she failed the drug test for a banned heart drug on Christmas Day, December 25th. However, the information, that test, didn't come to light until February 8th. That was one day after the mixed team competition. The Russian anti-doping agency apparently suspended Valieva. She appealed, so they reversed that decision. So then the IOC was, of course, not happy with that. So they took it to the, uh, the CAS, the Court for Arbitration uh, for Sport, and they just came out with the decision that Valieva is allowed to compete in the women's singles event, which starts on Tuesday, and they cited issues of fairness and the potential for irreparable harm to the 15-year-old due to the timing of the release of the positive test result. Makes sense to me, <laughs> he said with sarcasm in his voice. Uh, so, I, I mean, I'm not to be overly cynical here. She's a brilliant athlete, and I'm sure she's got a fabulous future. But it sounds to me, Mike, as if they're saying, well, we don't want to hurt her feelings, uh, so we're going to let her go ahead and do this. But 
I, I, it, the Canadian contingent must be apoplectic about this because, I mean, the you know, Olympic protocol usually is if somebody is disqualified, uh, obviously they don't get the medal, but the person, well, in this case, the Canadian team that was fourth would be elevated to third and they'd get the medal. They don't say anything about that in this announcement. Well, so there's kind of two issues at, at work here. So the one issue, whether or not she'll be punished for the doping violation, that hasn't really been cleared up yet. So that's, that's kind of the, the thing to kind of keep in mind. So they haven't really attacked the doping issue. This is more so of the circumstances surrounding the test and her age because she's considered a protected person because uh, she's only 15 years old. She's not considered an adult just yet. So that is why, according to CAST, why she is allowed to compete. However, the IOC obviously not too happy with this, so they're not going to hold a medal ceremony for the mixed team event. So Canada, their status is kind of in limbo. We have to feel for the athletes on the U.S. team who finished in second place. They worked so hard for this achievement, they got a medal, and now basically they're not going to have a medal ceremony. They're not going to get that opportunity. And what do you think about the women who are competing in the women's singles event against Valieva, which starts tomorrow? If Valieva happens to get on the podium in the top three, the IOC will not hold a medal ceremony then. It's just really uh, another black eye on this Olympic competition, something that is not needed considering everything that has happened leading up to the Games. It's just an absolute mess. And to try and make sense of it all, truthfully, Bill, it really doesn't make sense of when we're actually going to get an answer on the doping violation. It's just an absolute mess. Uh, and again, these guys are very, very capable of wordsmithing, these these guys uh, who are making these announcements. Because I know one of the questions that was obvious to me, and, and you, I was watching your report this morning on Global, uh, is, okay, there's no ceremony, there's no award ceremony. Does that mean they they won the medal? They get to keep the medal? We don't know. Uh, does she get to keep the medal that she won? And if she does compete again, and as you say, win places or shows in a situation like that, if I can use that analogy, does she get to keep the medal? They don't say. They just say there's not going to be a presentation ceremony, which really doesn't give us any information. Yeah, I think the biggest issue is the fact that this positive test result was from a sample on Christmas Day. So really, this should have been handled handled weeks ago. And what Cass is saying is because this is happening during the Olympics, it's not really fair to punish her right now because they haven't gone through due process to see if they can then test. That was her A sample that tested positive. They'd have to look at her B sample and kind of go through uh, the due process of the potential doping violation. They don't have time to do that. So I feel like this is just a Band-Aid uh, situation right now to kind of deal with what, we, what they can deal with over the next week. And then once the Olympics are over, they can address the doping allegations and what they're going to do. But I mean, Russia, of course, they're not called Russia right now. They're referred to as the Russian Olympic Committee because they've already had a number of do doping sanctions. So this is kind of spitting in the eye of that punishment, quote unquote, they're supposed to have. So I, I'm really unsure of what is going to happen. I'd have to think she's allowed to skate right now. They kind of want to get through the competition and then there may be retroactive punishment once they are able to go through the due process with the doping violation. Well, thank God there's no politics involved in Olympics. I mean, they promised us <laughs> that, didn't they? Uh, let's talk about some positive news then. I, I stayed up late last night uh, to watch uh, Christine De Bruyne uh, win a medal. Uh, this is a brand new event in these Olympics. Pretty exciting stuff uh, in uh, what they call the monobob bobsled. And uh, she ended up with the the bronze medal, right? She did, yeah. So this is the first time the monobob has been uh, competed at the uh, at the Olympics in on the women's side. So it's another opportunity for top bobsled athletes, top female bobsled athletes, to win a medal. You mentioned Christine De Bruyn won bronze. Actually, there's a Canadian connection, of course, yeah. to two podium spots because Kaylee Humphreys won gold for the U.S. Humphreys used to compete in Canada, won gold in two women bobsled back in 2010 and 2014. So a bit of a, uh, a Canadian connection on first and third place there in uh, the monobob uh, podium. 
Yeah, and uh, she's not from Stony Plain, Alberta originally, Kaylee Humphreys. Uh, somebody asked me yesterday, is well, how come she's in the state? I, I think she had a falling out with some of the coaches or something like that. But anyway, be that as it might, uh, she applied and it was actually got her uh, a thumbs up, I guess, to compete for the Americans literally days before the Olympics. So uh, good on her. Uh, another medal, of course, for uh, Stephen Dubois, uh, capturing the bronze medal in the 500 short track speed skating. Uh, that's been a pretty competitive event uh, through these Olympics. It has been. He'll have, a, he'll have a chance to get a third medal to become the first Canadian athlete at Beijing to win three medals at the Olympic Games. That's coming up uh, later in the week, and he'll also he'll be competing with in a relay event with Charles Hamlin, who of course is a five-time Olympic medalist. That will be the final race of his Olympic career, and if Canada is able to get a medal, so that will give Dubois three. That will give Charles Hamlin six total medals, which will tie him with Cindy Clausen for uh, to be the most decorated Canadian Winter Olympic athlete of all time. I believe that's coming up on Wednesday morning, so we'll have to circle our calendars for that one. Uh, and uh, Marietta O'Dyne, of course, and, uh, and Elliot Grondon, uh, medals in the, the snowboard cross, but, uh, and congratulations to them. What's going on with our women's curling team? I mean, we were expecting to do well, and I guess still might, but, I mean, it was such a slow start and a very disappointing start. Uh, I know they were playing this morning and, and winning the last time I checked just before we went to air. Uh, but are these guys turning it around? Because this is uh, this was uh, very disappointing for a lot of curling fans, but certainly for, uh, for we back here in Canada watching. Well, especially for Jennifer Jones, right? Because she won yeah. gold back in, in Sochi in 2014, went a perfect 11-0, and won her first match here in Beijing to make it 12-0, and and then she went 1-3 and in her first uh, four draws here in Beijing in 2022. But I think she has read to the ship, Bill. She has won her last two matches, the match you were uh, watching earlier today. She won that draw, beat Great Britain 7-3. to So she's back to 3-3 three and three with three draws remaining. But she's going to have to almost run the table because it's only the top four that will qualify for the medal round. So she's going to uh, have to continue this winning streak. She's won two in a row. She's going to have to probably make that five to qualify for the semifinal. All right, let's stay on the ice for just a couple of minutes. Uh, the women's hockey team, uh, we had great expectations. And boy, they haven't disappointed. They're undefeated. Another big win, and they're, they're going to be playing for gold this week. They will. And uh, in through six games thus far, Bill, they have outscored their opponents 54-8. to eight. Of course, the uh, gold medal match coming up, most likely going to be against the U.S. The U.S. is playing Finland right now. So this will, of course, be a rematch from 2018 where Canada lost in the shootout. But, I mean, they are right now the absolute class of the competition. They beat the U.S. earlier in uh, group play. But just, I mean, the team is firing completely on all cylinders. Brienne Jenner has tied an Olympic record with nine goals uh, so far in the tournament. She scored against Switzerland uh, in the semifinal. But uh, very excited to see if Canada can uh, get a little bit of uh, redemption from that gold medal loss back in 2018. And uh, as you're reporting, uh, even well, Hamilton Sarah Nurse has said, uh, I think it's a Canadian team record, isn't it, for most assists? Uh, so these guys, they're not just winning, they're setting records. Oh, for sure. And um, again, it, it's, it's amazing to see because as we continue on with, with women's hockey, and I mean, since their in inclusion in the Olympics over the last 25 years or so, and just kind of world championships, I mean, it really has been Canada and the U.S. Other countries are getting better, but Canada just seems to be getting better and better. The domination is really impressive. I mean, the 10-3 win over Switzerland into the semifinal. We'll have to see if, uh, again, they can uh, win the gold against the U.S. coming up in the gold medal match, but it has been exciting to watch. And the, the team, just the athleticism uh, and the skill and the speed they have, is it's a joy to watch. Uh, let's switch over to the men's side. Got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, kind of a shaky start. Uh, they, they won a game. Then, of course, you know, playing the Americans, so they, uh, they they beat China rather significantly, and they played them again this week. So they, these guys have got a chance to to actually gain some momentum here, don't they? 
Well, they do. This is kind of the same thing that happened back in 2010. Of course, we remember how 2010 uh, ended with the golden goal by Sidney Crosby, but it was a slow start by Team Canada back in 2010 when we had the best team in the world, and they weren't uh, automatically qualifying for the quarterfinal round. So the same thing that has happened here in 2022, Canada is forced to play an extra game, a a qualification game to get into the quarterfinals. That will be against China, as you mentioned. So this could be exactly what the doctor ordered for Team Canada. To just give uh, one more game to kind of uh, set their lines up and just and just really um, kind of coalesce a little more together to attack that quarterfinal, semi, and hopefully final round coming up over the next week. Uh, and the other thing, quick story: uh, Claude Julien is over there now. We're we're in the story because he and the announcement just before the Olympics was he wasn't going to be able to coach because of it. Well, as we found out, a rather serious tobogganing accident uh, with a punctured lung. But I guess he's made the trip. I, he's not behind the bench though. I don't think is he. No, he's still been in the stands, so I think, depending on how he's feeling, I think they might think to uh, to put him, or he will be on the bench at some point uh, throughout the tournament if can, uh, Canada continues to win. But, I mean, it's, it's also it's, it's tough for these guys, too, because, I mean, they really only got the, the, the word that they'd be joining the Olympic team in the last, what, four to six weeks or so since financial yeah. players decided not to go, and they have to try and kind of come together as a team. And, really, this benefits countries kind of outside of the, the Canada, Russia, U.S., right, where many of their players aren't necessarily in the NHL. They're used to playing together, whereas uh, Team Canada and Team USA and Russia, et cetera, don't have that. Uh, busy, busy times these days and a lot of stuff going on today, too. So I always look forward to your updates on this, Mike. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Anytime. Talk to you soon. You betcha. Mike Arsenal, reporter for Global News, uh, bringing us up to speed on the Olympics. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.